Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. special episode of Reconsider for the what third time since we started this program. I'm looking Xander in the face in the flesh. Isn't it great? It is great. It's a it's actually a beautiful face to behold. And I know he's giving me those eyes. And so we're here and as is tradition when we're together, uh, we've we're having a couple of beers. Well, I'm having a beer. Xander's having what are you having? Talisker, Talisker 10. And I'm having Jack's Abbey House Lager. Um, and we decided today that what we're going to cover is, uh, to a large extent, a bunch of questions posed to us by uh, the Reconsider Cabinet. Which, real quick, if you go on patreon.com slash reconsider, one of your options for donating is to join the Cabinet. And we meet every month, we talk about a lot of stuff, great meeting, and we decided that today... Just right afterward, we're going to work on some of the questions they had. Yeah, we have these meetings, folks ask us some questions, and we're going to kick off with one of them that was posed to us by... Victoria and Dave. By Victoria and Dave. Uh, thank you for joining, new members. So, the question was, here's this guy Trump, right? He's just this guy, you know? Uh, people have heard of him, I think. And... The question is, he, he obviously comports himself differently than some other leaders of the free world. Alternative comporting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how how does that comporting, composure, impact America's standing in the world? Does it impact America's standing in the world? And, bef- and before we have our analysis on that, some of the stuff that um, some of our listeners have heard, particularly our cabinet members, is that... Or that, you know, obviously he's kind of got a spat going on with Germany about NATO spending and trade. Um, the Brits were a little bit upset about what seemed to have been intelligence leaks. Um, Mark Macron from the new president of France had some choice words to say about Trump. So it seems like the leadership of some of our key allies are not happy with the guy right now. And therefore, what are the implications? What does it mean for the United States global role? Um, I've heard a few people say even that Angela Merkel is now the leader of the free world. Indeed. Now, I'm not going to speak for Eric on this one, but I wrote a piece on the Reconsider blog recently after a friend of mine online asked how my foreign policy perspectives differ from neoconservatism. And I wrote a very long article, which basically ended up me talking about different types of realism and how I think the best way to describe the way with which I analyze world events is realism. A certain type of realism, but we can just say realism. Yeah, and just for everyone listening, we've done a toolbox talk on this. We acknowledge that realism is a bit of a pompous uh, title for something. It's a pompous term, yeah. It's a pretty pompous term, but it's just the word and uh, what it generally entails is... Yeah, realism, all it means in a foreign policy sense is the way with which to best understand how states interact with one another is through an analysis of relative power. So there there may be other things that impact that relationship depending on what type of realism you subscribe to, but ultimately 
all state relation, all state interaction, multi-state interaction is dependent on some degree on relative power. And best as I can understand it, the the abilities of a state and their constraints is the best way to understand what options they have on their table, and that's an analysis of power. Right, and a lot of people would argue, uh, or realists would argue that leaders are actually quite constrained in their options and have less of an impact over foreign policy than you might think, that it's less the leader and more the circumstances. Exactly. So how does this apply to Trump, right? People don't like Trump. A lot of Europeans don't like Trump. A lot of European leaders don't like Trump. I think the question ultimately boils down to how much does what a leader say, what, what, how much does what a leader says actually matters? Um, what a le leader says. Yeah, what a leader says. How much does that actually matter? And I think the answer is a lot less than we think, a lot less than what a lot of people would like to think. At the end of the day, the relationship between states is, I really think, and maybe I'm doing some thinking here for you, but it's determined more by how the resources that one state has at its disposal can impact the choices that another state can make. So when we think about U.S.-European relations, one of, one of the big constraints here is military power. Europe just doesn't have much of it right now. They've been saying for years now that they will meet their NATO spending requirements, which is... 2% of their GDP. 2% of GDP. I think it's like 2% of GDP and 20% of budget. But Maybe. But 2% of GDP is the one that's, that's often quoted. And the U.S., for context, spends about 3.5% or a little less of its GDP on military right now, which is actually close to an historic low. Yeah, only, only a few NATO states actually meet the spending requirement right now. That means that to one degree or another, as it relates to defense imperatives, Europe's fairly reliant on the U.S. And you think, okay, well, what threats actually face Europe? It's certainly not the same types of threats necessarily, or the same consistency of threats, rather, that faced Europe in the Cold War, which is the Soviet Union. However, they still face threats from Russia, mixed now more with sort of this ambiguous threat from terrorism. So many argue that NATO priorities are diverging somewhat from what they were when, they, when the organization was initially established. But Russia still does pose a threat to the rest of Europe, especially Germany, which sits right in the middle and, I mean, to a degree, the security discussion of Europe has always been the role of Germany in one way or another for hundreds of years, I mean, since before the Thirty Years' War, right? And that brings up, I think, an important point that the other implied threat in Europe that realists believe in, uh, and, and certain, you know, a lot of national security people are kind of constantly thinking about is Europe is at threat under the, you know, in the shadows from itself. If you think about it, the Cold War period and onward was the first time in thousands and thousands of years that Europe was not at constant warfare with itself. Yeah. Um, you know, the norm for Europe, and we'll talk about this more, but the norm for Europe for, since the fall of the Roman Empire, was constant warfare followed, you know, interspersed by brief periods of peace that were always fleeting and everyone knew they were. And now suddenly we've had 60 to 70 years of peace. It is aberrant, it is strange. Realists would argue that a big reason that that peace is possible is actually because the United States is so dominant uh, in the foreign sphere, or in the military sphere, that it could squash any upstarts in Europe trivially, and therefore it's sort of like having a police force. Right? Having a police force means that we don't have to be afraid of our neighbors and therefore we can get along. Europe may be operating uh, as good neighbors in part due to U.S. power. Right. And that is the intra-Western Europe piece of it. But Russia poses a threat to most Western European, basically all of Western Europe to one degree or another, right? And that has been the balance since the beginning of the Cold War. Um, and 
so to a degree, Europe still depends on U.S. power to defend it, both from itself and from external threats. Now, we can talk about Merkel detaching from the U.S., becoming the new leader of the free world, the new leader of the West, but Germany has, does not have a powerful military. Since the end of World War II, it's been inculcated in their culture to restrain their military expenditures and the growth in their military arsenals for obvious reasons. Just like Japan. Just like Japan, although Japan is changing. Japan is starting to change. Yeah. Germany has not reached that point yet. Yeah. So, at the end of the day, w without the U.S. there to protect Europe, Europe faces serious threats. Russia's military expenditure is not nearly as large as the U.S. They don't have the same degree of technology. Frankly, Russia is facing serious problems right now, not just related to its military power. But without the U.S., Europe is on its own. Germany can't protect them. France can't protect them. Any individual state cannot protect itself, nor can it protect the rest of Europe from the external threat. And if the U.S. were to completely bow out, the, the national security interests of each country in Western Europe would very gradually, well, maybe not very gradually, but would begin to would begin to be more important to that state than the collective interest of Europe as a whole. So, from a realist perspective, which again is just understanding the relative balance of power in an area, without the U.S., the the protection of Western Europe begins to fall apart. And so, to to claim that. Western Europe is ready to walk away from the U.S. because they don't like this one president, I think is probably not a correct read of the situation. And so some of the arguments we've heard are that because Donald Trump, in his personal conversations with world leaders or his rhetoric, has said some inflammatory stuff that has caused some you know, blunt responses from some of our allies, there's this belief that Europe is going to pull away from us in response to that. The realist school, and in fact the liberal school of foreign policy, sort of all of the academic, the major academic schools of foreign policy, don't actually ascribe that much weight to what a leader says at a given time. It is the actions of a nation that actually have a whole lot more to do with their relationship than their words. Donald Trump may even be guilty of gaffes or insults. However, it would be gravely against the interests of Europe to make major foreign policy changes in reaction to someone's statements, exactly. even if they are a leader. We therefore think that the total impact of Trump, even on the United States standing on the world stage, is going to be minimal just as we think most individual president's personalities, or almost every individual president's personality, has very little to do with the United States standing on the world stage. And we can look to a lot of historical examples to understand this, where people worried that even with some very blundering actions, people worried that the United States would start to fall from its position as world leader, but it didn't. Well, let's talk about some of those prior examples, just because of the thesis that we're putting forward right now is that Trump's rhetoric doesn't really actually matter in terms of impacting the U.S.'s standing on the world stage. When has the U.S. public opinion in the past thought that the U.S. is in radical decline when really this wasn't the case? Mm. Well, let's start in recent history, right? Remember that whole Vietnam War thing? I'm a little younger, remember it. Yeah, well... But I read about it. We've read about it. We weren't alive during it. Now, in the late 60s, America was basically ready to tear itself apart. I mean, there, were, there was massive, massive unrest to the degree to which we have not seen since, certainly not today. Following, I mean, we saw shootings at Kent State. We saw constant violent protests in cities across the U.S. We saw violent suppression by the government of these protests, some of which were racial, some of which were simply anti-war. Exactly. And after the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, the, the expectation was we were abdicating our role in the world, 
we were no longer standing up to defend against communism. And as a result, we were leaving the world wide open to be invaded by and influenced by the spread of communism all over the world. And this was a very real fear. After Nixon was impeached in 1973, we'll come back to Nixon, but after he was impeached, we saw what looked like the spread of communism all over. There was uh, all throughout Africa, certainly in Angola, throughout South America, and I mean, some people would argue that Allende was not actually influenced by the Soviet Union in retrospect, but at the time it looked like a socialist government taking taking hold. Then there was so, Afghanistan. That came later. Yeah. Uh, but right at the time the, the Vietnam yeah. War ended, yeah. it looked like America had stepped down from its role as being involved in the world. It was, it was, it was going to say, screw it, we're stepping back. Yeah, and the United States' core foreign policy at the time was containment of the Soviet Union. That was its national security prerogative, and to a large extent, its promise to the free world. And it looked like that it had abandoned that. And people will shrug off. Well, there was Angola, there was Mozambique. But I think the case of Angola is particularly interesting because what happened in, in the 70s is 50,000 Cuban troops were sent to Angola. And South Africa, which as a result of the troops that were sent to Angola, South Africa ended up developing a nuclear weapon. So these states that had not really previously played any sort of major global geopolitical role started to. I mean, any state that develops a nuclear weapon takes a bigger role on the world stage, right? And this is in part because the U.S. had stepped back and opened up the, 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 the room for communism to become more involved in different states because they saw that the U.S. was not going to put its neck out because it couldn't. The domestic will wasn't there. It, wasn't a, it didn't have that option available to them at the time. So, so this was the landscape in America in the 70s. The U.S. Has, had abdicated its role we were a declining power. The Soviet Union was on the aggressive. It was on the offensive. And the world looked like a scary place. It was scary enough to, to, to the point where even though the U.S. couldn't actually intervene in other places, it thought that it was necessary to send the CIA into South America and try to you know do these covert takeovers of, well, not takeovers, but overthrows of governments because it, it couldn't use military force. So that was the scene at the end of the Vietnam War. It sounds like it was pretty gnarly. If we take a step back, well, and obviously to resolve that, in the 1980s, the U.S. was reascendant. Um, and the Soviet Union fell in part due to its own internal rot and in part due to the pressure pressed on it in military spending by Reagan and Thatcher. Um, and the United States had the fundamentals at the time, right? The economic fundamentals, the political strength, military strength, to be able to remain a contender on the world stage, even though it sort of took a break. Yeah, and those fundamentals, which revealed themselves in the 80s, were still there in the 70s. They just weren't overtly obvious. And yet those are the fundamental trends that, that drove geopolitics over the course of those 10 to 15 years. If we look a little bit further back, we think of the 1950s. Now, a lot of people romanticize the 1950s or they somewhat ironically romanticize it because they think of, you know, um, Americana, they think of Stepford Wives, Edward Scissorhands, they think of this sort of time of plenty, the American way. And a lot of people who weren't alive then believed that there was a great deal of confidence. But the 1950s was when Sputnik was launched, it was the first military satellite launched by either of the contenders of the Cold War. The United States hadn't had one yet. There was incredible fear about what that satellite could do. Was it spying? Was it like beaming rays into people's minds to turn them into communists? I mean, people were legitimately worried about this in the 1950s. Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space. The Soviets were beating us to space handily. There was the Red Scare. And a lot of people very genuinely believed that the Soviets had a great number of spies in the country. So HUAC formed the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Um, obviously, the McCarthyism era started then. And 
uh, to a large extent, there were a lot of spies yeah. in the United States, and particularly in the State Department. The Venona Papers, released in 1995, talk a lot about that. Um, it seemed very much like the U.S. was losing the Cold War from the get-out. It was a terrifying time, right? If you think about it, I mean, in retrospect, it's it's so hard to imagine that fear. Um, oh, yeah, there was also the missile gap and the bomb gap, right? The Soviets seemed to have a much stronger nuclear weapons arsenal to the extent that there was fear that they could strike us without retaliation. And, you know, if you're my age, 30, you talk to your parents and they'll tell you about bomb raid drills that they had. This is a frightening time for the United States when it believed that it was on the decline, when the Soviets had seemed to have stolen half of Europe at Potsdam and were on the aggressive. They had the money, they had the will, they had the military. And there was real fear that they were going to steamroll Western Europe and there was nothing we could do about it. And yet, at the end of the day, Americans beat the Soviets to the moon. Our nuclear technology ended up far more advanced was even in time in retrospect our missile technology was far more was far superior and a trend that you begin to notice when you, when you look at past periods of American insecurity is that our insecurity is actually in a way our strength because America is so good at being afraid and overreacting that it drives us to commit in sometimes an unnecessary amount of resources to fixing the problem and then we, we fix the problem mightily and then we, we crush the problem, and we overcome the problem so much that we forget how it could ever have been a problem. But that that perspective only comes in retrospect. If we look even more recently, for times that most of our listeners are going to remember, I mean, after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and especially the deterioration of Iraq into 2005-2006, there's a strong belief that the United States' day as the world global leader was done. And... Obviously, it wasn't because we then again, when Obama took office, talked about whether the Obama doctrine sort of, quote unquote, retreat from the world stage and the more hands off foreign policy, uh, more kind of or at a distance foreign policy, uh, whether that retreat meant a retreat from the world stage. And now that Trump is in charge and he's running around saying a bunch of inflammatory stuff, whether that means that there's going to be a retreat from the world stage, uh, because in each of these presidencies, a lot of allies were quite incensed with U.S. Uh, policy, behavior, and rhetoric. Um, in the case of Bush versus Obama, it was sort of the opposite groups, right? Yeah. Ha half of our, or some chunk of our allies were upset about Bush, and then the other half of our allies were upset about Obama. Um, <clears throat> and what's interesting about Trump is that we've got a lot of rhetoric, but we don't have too much action uh, that allies are either happy about or upset about except for the Syrian missile strike, which they seem to be happy about. And you could take this back even further. I mean, you can look at other periods in American history when everything seemed completely and utterly lost. I mean, during the Hoover presidency, it, it, was, it was the onset of the Great Depression. He implemented policies that seemed to make worse at the time based on prevailing doctrines. Arguably, some of those prevailing doctrines did make it worse. I mean, the contraction of money supply made the problem worse. Uh, and yet we recovered from it. We arguably didn't recover from it for 15 years, but we recovered from it. You can go back further. You can go back to Ulysses Grant, who was in most definitions of the term a failed president, a successful general, but he, ha he had to deal with this impossible situation. Reconstruction. How, how do you deal with an entire chunk of the country that had been utterly defeated and build them back up when the country, the part of the country that's on your side, expended hundreds of thousands of lives and blood defeating them? And wanted revenge. Yeah, exactly. So I think this, this leads to a broader topic, which is the idea of historical perspective. It is very difficult in the moment to, when you're following the news every day and you're, you're intricately, your lives are tied into the topics that are being explored by media and politicians, really, that are being felt by you as well, to 
take that into context of larger trends that you don't personally experience. Mm. Because our own personal experiences necessarily feel more important, feel more relevant, feel closer to us. Yeah, I remember specifically, you know, I'm talking to some of the new, um, the newer students at MIT, freshmen, sophomores. They're 18, 19 years old. Well, 9-11 was 16 years ago. So these guys, for them, 9-11 is history. It is not their lives. It is history. Just as for me, the collapse of the Berlin Wall is history. It is stuff that is sealed in the past. And therefore, it seems like it could not have been different. Whereas those of us who are alive for 9-11 remember before that, or, well, those of us who are old enough during 9-11 remember before that, this time in the 90s where we had this naivety that everything was great, everyone loved us, everything was going to be wonderful forever, and we had this terrible disillusionment. Because in the 90s, we believed that things were just going to continue the way that they were going. Exactly. What happened at the end of the Cold War? We saw the Soviet Union collapse, a foe that we had been fighting for 45 years, struggling. I mean, can you imagine... That, that, that is a multi-generational conflict which presented a degree of risk which no one in my generation can really even claim to be able to understand. I, I mean, because we're talking about the end of the world. Yeah, terrorism ain't nothing when you have, at, at the peak of their arsenal in the Cold War, the Soviet Union had 40,000 nuclear warheads. I... Nothing that some some crazy jihadist in the Middle East could do can come close to that, even if they were to acquire, through the collapse of Pakistan, a nuclear warhead or two. I mean, this is something else, right? And understandably then, in 91, at the end of this whole thing, the U.S. looked around and said, we won. Liberal democracy is the preponderant and morally righteous system of governance provides for not only the best outcomes for the majority of human lives and human experience, but it, it is also, just from a matter of inertia, the most successful system that we have around. And so we looked. We looked at the world and said, okay, it is now just a matter of time before the rest of the world even those states that haven't signed up to liberal democracy, it's coming, the Soviet Union has fallen, the major enemy that we had, all the rest will come too. And when they do, there will be global peace forever. Because liberal democracies don't fight each other. And so this guy, Francis Fukuyama, the political scientist, wrote this book called The End of History. I mean, think of the implications of that title. Yeah. And, and he meant it. And it, it's, it's misinterpreted by some people. But what, what he was getting at is the idea that the degree of of conflict that had arisen in centuries past due to competing systems of governances will gradually come to an end as everyone else signs up to local democracy. And for most of the 90s, that seemed to be the prevailing viewpoint. And at the time, that's what everyone thought. That's what we have. We just have to wait a little bit. Yeah, what's going on in Yugoslavia is kind of dirty, and that's unfortunate. But growing pains, growing pains. Yeah, we'll, we'll bomb them a little bit, and we'll you know we'll we'll prevent the Serbs from taking away. No, what's going on in Rwanda is a little crazy, but you know, growing pains. Even the Russians seem to be getting on board. Yeah, right. Everyone loves Yeltsin, right? Everyone loves Yeltsin. Just ask any Russian that you happen to know. Yeah, and they'll tell you how much they. Love Yeltsin. Uh, and then 2001 happened. And it was like a rude awakening for us. And I, I certainly, at, what was I, 14? I didn't understand the implications of the terrorist attack on 9-11. I don't think anyone did. I, it, it was an attack. We were hit. We had to hit back. But what 9-11 really was, was a rude awakening to the U.S. that this idea that the spread of liberal democracy and the peace that would result from it, the theory that liberal democracy results in peace is an inevitability was in question. Yes. And in particular, parts of the Muslim world, large swaths of it, were pushing back against liberal democracy, against consumerism, materialism, capitalism, um, you know, all these things that we sort of hold dear. 
um, because fundamentally, to a large extent, liberal democracy, secular liberal democracy and materialism are almost, they're a virus, right? They're viral and they're really great at homogenizing everything. So the reconsider moment here is this. When things seem crazy and when things seem good, at the moment, it is extraordinarily difficult to actually tease out what we feel from what's actually happening because what we experience in our lives, day to day, year to year, is our own experiences and therefore they seem close to us. The proximity is, is that much nearer. And they're more real. They're more real. Our own experiences are more real to us than the experiences of someone else who we haven't personally, you know, lived through. So it is very hard to detach from the immediacy of the events that we experience day to day to actually get a sense of how those events fit into wider context. And yet there is no moment in human history that has not experienced the same degree of immediacy by someone. So here's the thing to think about. There is a certain degree of historical perspective that is extraordinarily difficult to get if you're just going off day-to-day news, how we react to news, how that news even impacts our life on a day-to-day basis. Which is usually not much. Yeah. And, I, I mean, even if it is, even if, if you've lost a grant because of, you know, the current precedency, that doesn't necessarily change the wider trends in, in global history. Good point. And, and I say that knowing people who have lost research grants, and it's tragic, and they've been working on these things for years. Yeah. But because it is so difficult to grasp how our daily lives fit into broader historical contexts, it's difficult, therefore, to see the forest from the trees. It's hard to see what the real trends are. We always think that at any given time, we are moving from some sort of base point that we're currently experiencing into the future. It's some sort of forecast based on now. That what we're experiencing now is some sort of base reality that's going to be crafted and developed on in the future. When in reality, what we're living right now may just be an aberration. But that's really hard to feel intuitively. So when in the 90s we thought that liberal democracy was preponderant, that just seemed to be the way the world was going. And yet now, in retrospect, we can clearly see that that was an aberration. That, that 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 ideological mindset was not something that was going to persist. The U.S., and we'll get into this, is likely to remain preponderant, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the world is going to pick up the flag of liberal democracy. Right. So this gets us to one of the second question, or one of the other questions. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So this gets us to one of the other questions that some of our listeners had for us. Some of this, this is sort of a mashup between Victoria, Dan, and Mark on our cabinet. And it's, what's going to happen to the United States going forward? Especially, you know, in part because there's a sense of a threat about the United States' role in the global stage right now and into the future, is the United States' day over? So let's let's talk about why this view might be preponderant first, and then we can talk about maybe why it is or it isn't. If you're my age, you're about 30, 
you've seen the U.S. go through some growing pains. You might not have been fully politically aware in the 90s, but it was certainly the U.S.'s heyday. And then you saw all the issues that came with the wars in the Middle East that we promised, guys, is not going to be another Vietnam. Totally not going to be the longest war in American history. Definitely. You saw Obama continue to struggle, following really the will of the people and pulling out of Iraq and suffering the consequences when that created a power vacuum that, in retrospect, seems inevitable. Uh, but at the time, I mean, full disclosure, I was in support of that policy. Mm. And and now we come to the presidency of Donald Trump that seems to just be tearing down all orthodoxy, all norms that we have established in the decades that have followed World War II, and seemingly willing to tear the whole building down with him to, to build something anew, whether or not you agree with whatever that new is. Is that really what's happening, though? That's the question. Does what we feel day to day, based on our own personal experiences, does that actually describe the, the relationships that U.S. power has with the rest of the world? I think the answer is probably not. Let's look at what those fundamentals really are. And this, really to do this, requires detaching a bit from the day-to-day news frenzy, from our own personal, uh, from our own personal emotions of this particular president or any particular administration. It requires looking at what we have available to us, U.S., what our constraints are, and what the constraints of other countries in the world are. So from, from an economic perspective, we still have the largest GDP in the world. We have the largest economy, and not only the largest economy, but the constitution of that economy is one of the most diverse. Yes. Actually, it's not one of the most diverse. I think it's the most diverse. One of the few countries that if there was like a major trade war, we would hurt, but we would still be able to get by. Yes. The same cannot be said for countries like Saudi Arabia or Russia that are completely and overly dependent on energy exports. Yes. We look at military aspects. I'm sure everyone's heard the statistic that the U.S. spends more on defense as like the next 10 countries combined. Eight. Is it eight? Yeah. Okay. So close to 10. It's an order of magnitude. Yes. But what does that actually mean? It means that we have more nuclear weapons than anyone else in the world aside from Russia, but we have better ways of delivering it. We have better defense systems than Russia. We have more aircraft carriers than any other country in the world, again, by an order of magnitude. And even other aircraft carriers like Russia's, like I mean, Russia's is diesel powered. Like it, it does not have the ability to project power at the same distances as the US. Yes, it literally has to depend on every few weeks at the slowest diesel tankers coming in to refuel it, whereas American carriers can go for years without refueling. No other country can come close to challenging our Navy. No other country can come close to challenging our nuclear arsenal. In terms of sheer numbers, there are militaries in the world with more soldiers than the U.S., but a military strength is not just the number of people serving in it, but its training, its professionalism, and the hardware that it has available to it. No country comes close to the U.S., not China, not Russia. They're literally decades away from even coming with a hair sniff if the U.S. were not even to continue developing. Right. So the resources that the U.S. has available to it, its military strength, its economic strength, are completely and utterly unchallenged. No single president can ruin this. There's nothing that Trump, as president, can do to keep it that he can do to, to completely screw up the U.S.'s preponderant military capability. There's too many checks in this way. Even if he came into office and said, you know what, I'm going to propose this budget to cut defense spending by 80%, Congress wouldn't approve that. Think about all the different areas in the U.S. that depend on those defense-related jobs where people in the legislature would say, I'm not going to vote for that. It'll Think about how many jobs it'll kill in my district. I will lose that election. Right. And also... Even if Trump were to just somehow, through a magic wand, completely destroy the U.S. economy, the problem for the rest of the world is their economies would be destroyed as well. That's the military aspect. Economic aspect, we have, it's part cultural, it's part legal. We have a system that allows for a greater degree of risk-taking than other places in the world. 
that encourages greater investment. We also just have access to certain resources that other countries don't. I mean, in addition to all of our human capital, our technological expertise, the military's focus on developing novel technological solutions. I mean, the internet exists because of DARPA. GPS exists because we needed a way to guide our ICBMs in the Cold War. And that's the reason the microchip exists as well. Don't forget space pens. Space pens? Oh, uh, the, zero gravity pens. Yeah, right, exactly. The, this is a classic joke that the United States spent millions of dollars and years developing a pen that would work in zero gravity yeah. in order to be able to write in space. What did the Soviets use? They used pencils. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes a simple solution, right? Sometimes it's a simple solution. We have all of these resources available to us, and now in the last six years, we have energy. Years and years and years, you can say, God, if only we can develop some degree of energy independence from the rest of the world. And now, we basically have it. Yeah, the U.S. is, is one of the large, or the largest, we're one of the largest energy, natural gas, and oil producers in the world now. We are now a, a hydrocarbon exporter. We have literally turned our terminals, our coastal terminals, we've literally turned them around. So they used mean? to be import terminals. And we literally just, they, you know, they, they flowed in, and we literally just picked them up and turned them around 180 degrees and dropped them back down so they can flow out because now we're exporting it. And this is massive implications for the rest of the world, too. I mean, countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia, we, we've basically dealt in part like the death knell to at least one of our major potential competitors in the world, Russia. Yeah. Because they depend so heavily on oil and natural gas exports. And now, the and those US, prices being high. And those prices being high. And we don't really, our economy is not dependent on oil. But hey, if it gets up past a certain point, those oil, those energy companies will, will, will turn the wells back on. Right. It makes sense because it becomes profitable on a project level basis. But we don't have an, a, uh, an economy that's dependent on it. And that keeps the price of oil and natural gas low, which is crippling Russia. So even our economy is crippling our potential competitors in the world. So these are the fundamentals when we look at the U.S. economically, militarily. Politically, there are challenges. Big time. But politically, there have been challenges. I mean, we talked about Hoover. We talked about Nixon. Talked about, about the 1960s. Talked about the 1960s. Which was, again, way more divided than it is now. Let, let's talk about how, how how Trump seems to many to represent a constitutional crisis at the Electoral College, elected someone they shouldn't. It was a failure of the institution because it was supposed to be a way for intelligent, well-informed individuals to block this sort of person from getting to power. What about John Quincy Adams? What about John Quincy Adams? John Quincy Adams... One, in what was seen at the time as a complete and utter constitutional crisis. He was not elected by the people. He was elected by the Congress. It's the only time in American history that the Congress elected the president. And now is when Andrew Jackson lost. He won next time. And he was a big populist. People loved him. The American people loved him. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows the American people loved him. He was the most beloved presidential candidate in history and definitely the most mistreated in all of history. <laughs> the most mistreated. The most. And uh, and yet he lost, despite his popular support. Mm. And at the time, because he was mistreated. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There was no other reason. People just hated him. Uh, I mean, people loved him, but, but the, but the, the, the establishment, elites, hated, establishment him. hated him. Mm-hmm. They were out to get him. But that's kind of true. Uh, in bit. the case of Jackson, yeah. A little bit. Anyway. The, the point is, the populist president lost and what was at the time seen as an election that was stolen by this guy who just happened to uh, push the election in the Congress and then hoodwink and horse trade his way around. An establishment coup. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was largely a failed presidency. As a result, John Quincy was not able to do very much because he didn't have popular support. And then Andrew Jackson won. He struck down the central bank. Uh, or the national the, the national bank, and he 
was he was a truly and utterly populist president, arguably the first that the U.S. ever had, and he's on our twenty dollar bill. Yeah, I actually find it very ironic that he's on the twenty dollar bill. I sometimes wonder whether, you know, given that he destroyed the National Bank, whether they put him on the twenty dollar bill just to spite him, yeah, right? Oh, just just as a terrible joke that has him spinning in his grave constantly. Why does any of this matter? The, the point is, the U.S. has had major failed presidencies before, constitutional crises, presidents who have been seen as populists pandering to the lowest common denominator available in society, and we've moved on and found solutions to our problems. Well, and if you're, you know, if you're in the, if, you, if you're really invested in the current, in the emotions of the current political climate, I mean... Whether you're Democrat or Republican, you probably think that, you know, since either J, you know, I don't know, JFK or or Reagan or something, that every president of the other stripe has been a failed president, right? So if you're a Democrat, Bush failed president, Reagan failed president, Ford failed president, Nixon definitely failed president. If you're a Republican, Clinton big time failed president, Obama worst president ever. Carter, total joke. I mean, everyone has been a failed president, allegedly, albeit we seem to keep chugging along okay. Yeah. Now, why are we talking about presidents that came about hundreds of years before? Because we like history. History's fun, but why is history important? Mm. Because it's very easy to walk day to day and read BBC, CNN, NBC, Fox, whatever you go to. And, and see how clearly and plainly the world is falling apart, how America, how, how America's ascendancy in the world is deteriorating. And, and it is very difficult to detach from that unless you have some degree of historical perspective and see how, while nothing exactly the same ever repeats itself in history, things that are similar have occurred before, why those things are similar, why they've played out certain ways. And it's, it's really difficult with an understanding of prior failed presidencies in the U.S. and how bad some of them truly were. Yeah. Not only how bad they were, but what the opinion was of the population at the time of how bad they were. To look at what's happening right now in the U.S. and say that its end is truly nigh, given all of the material, economic, and military benefits that we have over every other single country in the world. I mean, let's look at some of our other potential competitors, right? Really, it's just Russia and China, realistically, right? Yeah. If you mentioned Russia is completely, utterly dependent on energy exports, they're they're already spending down their foreign reserves because oil is far below what they were predicting, and they need to maintain pension expenditures. Although they're cutting those. They are beginning to cut those. Putin has begun to entertain the plans of this guy named Kudrin, who's been pushing for neoliberal reforms for decades, but now he's actually inviting him back into his inner circle and saying, oh, all right, what does this actually look like? Something like 90 plus percent of Russians depend on, on pensions, to give out, like state pensions. It's not the same as in the U.S., right? Uh, wow, I had no idea. It's huge. That's massive. Yeah. Yeah. Bigly, even. Bigly. It's huge. It's bigly. Now, if those get cut, you start running into some of the problems that Russia has seen in its past, which is a people willing, almost, not almost, admirably so, to put up with an extreme amount of suffering, of abject circumstances, so long as the leader in charge of the time seems to be pushing society in the right direction. So far, Putin has been able to maintain this image. But if it gets to the point where Putin has to begin adopting policies that are cutting people's ability to feed their family, well, Russia's no stranger to revolution. I'm not saying that's going to happen in Russia, but they will face social unrest. And that's what's happening right now, strictly because the price of oil is too low and they do not have the luxury of time to diversify their economy. Yes, and they don't have the power to be able to bring the price of oil up. In particular, because the United States creates so many hydrocarbons now. Exactly. That's that's one of Russia's main problems, really, is that they're just running out of money because their economy is not diversified enough. What about China? What about China? I say they're they're less at an immediate risk of a 
complete collapse, but man, are they facing serious challenges. Mm. How about that debt? How about that debt? If you include corporate and local and real estate and government debt, they're in something like their debt's something like two hundred fifty percent of GDP, which is quite high. That's a lot. Uh, why does that matter? Because China's essentially been using debt to prop up politically important state-owned enterprises that are that are economically failing. They cannot really, they're struggling to stay profitable because they're not efficient, because they're not productive, and yet they provide so many jobs that if they were to go out of business, the Communist Party would face political problems. And so the government is essentially printing money to support them, which works to a degree, because when you start printing too much money, you start dealing with issues of inflation. So to some degree, they're, they're strapped by how much money they can extract from the economy. And when they can no longer extract that money, they're printing inflation. Yeah, and there's a reason that the United States and other Western European countries don't print money to spend by the government. Yes. The government does not spend, the government of Western economies does not spend printed money. Printed money only gets loaned out into banks that will get paid back. There's a really good reason for this, and it's because faith in the system starts to collapse and faith in the value of the printed currency starts to collapse when it's spending money that it's printed. I mean, even a simpler issue is a matter of supply and demand. If your supply of money goes up exponentially, then the value of it decreases. Right. Yeah. Uh, so China is, is dealing with this problem that they've basically depended overly on the real estate market because they don't have a very strong consumer market, they've had to target industries or push industries to target on building up real estate. And this has worked up to a point. Because not only do are people investing in real estate and are construction companies building more properties, but everything that goes into building a piece of property, all the commodities, all the construction materials, all the companies that create those materials have become dependent on this one industry. And all those companies are supported by debt. And so you get to a point where once that supply becomes too big, then well, demand won't keep up with it and prices risk collapsing. And prices have come down in China before and they've been able to ma manage it to a degree, but all the while that has continued to increase as the economy becomes more levered, uh, more dependent on debt, it will become increasingly difficult to manage those price swings. Yeah, it becomes fragile. And so on some level you see, what are the broader trends? For hundreds of years, China has gone through periods of unification and dissolution. Oh, thousands of years. Thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, you've had literally hundred year long periods where China is no longer China, it is several states. Up to 25 at yeah, a time. Exactly. China's been unified for the last couple hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. The, the pattern that you begin to notice that emerges is the coast will become wealthy because it has access to trade and the interior doesn't grow to the same degree because infrastructure to, to transfer that wealth to the interior is very difficult to build. China's trying to do that right now with the whole one belt, one road policy. Right. That's what that policy is, is trying to find ways to distribute wealth to the interior. It's really hard. They haven't been doing a great job at it. And when that discrepancy develops, you have seen periods of extreme social unrest that have turned into revolutions. Generally, that comes out of the peasantry in Russia. And that is not necessarily where revolutions always come from. I mean, if you look at communist ideology, it's not from the peasants, it's from the urban proletariat. Right. Um, and yet, Mao's revolution was completely and utterly dependent on peasant populations. Yes. On the rural side of the country. Yeah, and ironically, as much as he wanted to destroy the institutions of the past, it was sort of the mandate of the he a mandate of heaven, which the Kuomintang had lost, uh, that sort of fueled the, the communist agrarian uprising in China, which is just one of dozens and dozens that have happened through Chinese history. Exactly. And so now we see another period of time where economic growth has made the coast richer, and it's, you know, not it's basically left the interior poor. I mean. It's doing better now than it was 10 years ago, but you have hundreds of millions of people that are still in poverty. Right. 
Like, real poverty. Real poverty, yeah. And um, Xi Jinping, the president of China, is aware that this is where revolutions come from. And so his strategy right now is to consolidate his power enough to become sufficiently dictatorial where he can take wealth along the coast and, and distribute it inwards to try to prevent this uprising. What that requires, essentially, is finding ways to prevent rich people on the coast from sending their money abroad. Yeah. So it means closing the Chinese economy off to the rest of the world, which means dampening economic growth. And yet that's the balance that he has to face. Either find ways to prevent social unrest or continue to grow the economy. You can't really have both. And that is not a problem. That That is a structural problem in the Chinese political economy. It is not going anywhere. So that's something that will probably play out in my mind over a longer period of time than, than Russia's challenge. But these are the two countries that can challenge the U.S. What is, what is the U.S.'s problem? A bad president. Yeah, he can screw some trade policies up, but he cannot change the fundamentals of the U.S. in terms of its economic or military strength. I do believe that even among the people who really don't like Donald Trump, they understand that the threat of Donald Trump is not that great. And here's why. People have been talking about impeaching Donald Trump since he was elected. Recently, there has been a realization that if you impeach Donald Trump, you get Mike Pence. This has caused a lot of people to back down from the desire to impeach Donald Trump. And why? because you would have a competent conservative in charge who would be able to push a conservative agenda. What does that mean? It means that people would rather have Donald Trump for all of the invictive um, and for all of the hysteria about how monstrous and terrifying he is, they would rather have Donald Trump than a competent conservative. And therefore, what that indicates is people understand, you know what, he's not actually that bad. There's a lot of bad things about him, but he's not so damaging to the United States that we would rather have a competent conservative in charge rather than him. And I actually genuinely think that it's not people sort of, you know, if he was so bad that he absolutely had to go because he's tearing down the country, it would be sort of a, it would be pretty absurd to be more afraid of competent conservative than someone who's destroying the country. But the fact that people are more afraid of a competent conservative than they are of Donald Trump being in office means I think people must understand, you know, assuming good intent here, people must understand that he is not that destructive, that he's not that frightening. And that a lot of his politics that people like to talk about, again, see wedged, but that people understand deep down that he is not as destructive as they like to talk about he is. Of course, this is just politics. It's not shocking that people are less concerned about someone than they talk about. It's not shocking that, you know, there was rhetoric about Obama that was so over the top as to be unfathomable. And it's not surprising that there's rhetoric about Donald Trump that paints him out to be a danger to, like a fundamental danger to the United States. When in fact, they'd be more afraid of a seemingly much more competent president because he doesn't happen to have a certain kind of agenda. Yeah. So what do we take from one, there's only so much any president can do. And this is on purpose. This is the way that the office was set up. And yet, in every campaign, always, people always seem to forget the first axiom of politics, which is all politicians lie. Some just do it better, and others do it more flamboyantly than others. And so when your person makes it to office, you are inevitably disappointed when they renege on some of their campaign promises. Why? Because either one, they lie, or, or two, because they encounter constraints in the office that even they were not anticipating. Called checks, checks and balances. And when you hate the guy who got elected, you forget this as well. And forget that there will be things that he claimed and promise in the campaign that he will take care of that he simply will not be able to do, either because he was not able to or because he lies. The executive is a weak office. Now, there are things that the executive has unilateral power to do. The strength of the executive has grown over time. 
Hawks can complete control over the nuclear arsenal. That's certainly something we can talk about that. But but if, for example, six years of the Obama presidency were defined by a, quote, obstructionist Congress, it shows that Congress has the final say. It has the ability to be constructionist or uh, obstructionist. As is the judiciary, as we've seen the courts consistently blocking a lot of the executive orders that Trump would like to have had pushed through. Checks and balances. They seem to be working. They don't always work, and they don't always work consistently or in a single direction. But on average, they seem to accomplish the point. Presidents are, I don't know what it's like to be president, but I imagine almost all of them disappointed when they get to office and see how little power they have. This it sounds like a terrible job, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, I don't think I want it. Just garbage. I mean, everyone has so many expectations of you. I mean, look at the things that are on these guys' website campaign promises. It, and it's sort of like, I don't know if you could pull it off if you were a dictator. Yeah. I, just, I don't see how you're going to do most of this, given historical precedent. And you're saying all this to get elected, and then people are just going to be really mad at you for your entire tenure and you're just going to be frustrated and bounce off a bunch of brick walls for eight years and then you retire and you'll have many more gray hairs and then hopefully you'll go, you know, water skiing with Richard Branson and get to enjoy yourself finally. Does that sound enjoyable? I mean, the, the water skiing part does. With Richard Branson? He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, you met him. No, I just, I, he seems like a great guy. I take your word for it. No, he does seem chill. I mean, that hair. I know. Right? The president is a weak office. And yet, every time the campaign rolls around, we build up abnormally, absurdly high expectations for our person, or de demonize and vilify the other person for claims that they make, and it never, it never happens. The point of all of this is it is necessary to have some degree of historical context to be able to interpret the daily events through which we live that seem to have such great imports to the degree that they actually matter. And that's really hard to do without like reading a lot. Yeah, and this practice of detaching yourself, putting stuff in context, and having skepticism about the you know, about the, the implications of someone saying something, uh, tweeting something um, even enacting a policy, the, the ability to see that in context and, and start to question how important it is. I mean, it's not only important for Americans to do as a collective body politic in order to restore to sane politics, but good Lord, it's important for your mental health and your happiness and your well-being. Because over the past nine, well, since probably 2000, or maybe even since Monica Lewinsky, the amount of despair and rage and frustration and just emotional pain that the country feels all the time is just tragic. So a couple of points to take away at the end of this episode. One, it's, it's not that America is not facing challenges. That is not what we're trying to say. Rather, is that America has shown time and time again the ability to face extraordinary challenges and prove to be resilient despite them. So when you find yourself, and here's a reconsider moment, here's a reconsider moment. When you find yourself looking at events in the world and reacting to it a certain way and saying, this seems either insurmountable or unique or just something that it's going to be incredibly difficult to resolve. Think not about your prior experiences with similar situations, but rather prior situations in history in which the society at the time had a reaction that is similar to that which you're having now. And if you can think about a time and relate to it that happened before when you were born, even better, because you will have a certain degree of detachment that's not available to you for events which, through which you live personally. And if you can find that moment and see how that moment resolved itself, I won't tell you the answer, but you'll have a better idea of that answer yourself. Xander just dropped the mic. Not, not literally because it's sitting in front of us, and dropping it would be excruciating to your ears. 
but Xander's done. And so am I. It's been great. It's been a ton of fun, Xander. Thank you. Thank you to our cabinet for asking the insightful questions. Seriously. That acted as seeds to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, we were so excited about them that we got on it a day later. We said, we gotta, we got to get to this. we got to do our research, think about it, talk about it. So, Eric, what should you remember always? Um, that you should listen to what Eric and Xander think and follow that blindly. We will do all the thinking for you. All you of question it. us, you will fail miserably. It's true. No, but seriously. Don't let, let the, the pundits, pundits do, do the, the thinking, thinking for you. you. Pause. Reconsider. This is Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. We'll see you guys soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.